Welcome back to the program. It often seems that in the desire to go to war, there is always the effort to sanitize warfare. Shock and awe, death from above, are all about disconnecting man from the faces of connections on the ground. It's also about how the decisions are made to go to war. Always easier when it's less about committing blood and treasure and more about technological prowess. Drones or remote piloted aircraft are perhaps the ultimate manifestation of this attitude. A pilot in Kansas or Nevada sits at controls and drones not only see the world, but also have the potential to apply remote control and sanitize devastation. These drones are here to stay. They are now a key part of the modern military and of counterterrorism. So the more we understand, the better. We're going to find out more today as we talk to Lieutenant Colonel Mark McCurley. He's a retired Air Force pilot, a former intelligence operator, and back in 2003, he volunteered for the Predator program, deploying five times to Iraq, Afghanistan, and other locations in the Middle East. He's accrued more than 1,000 hours flying the Predator and Reaper drones, and it is my pleasure to welcome Mark McCurley here to talk about his new book, Hunter Killer, Inside America's Unmanned Air War. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the drone program, because one of the things you talk about at Hunter Killers is, is when the program first started, it was kind of considered a laughing stock. It wasn't taken all that seriously. Well, you know, uh, when you introduce an unmanned airplane in a community that <laughs> envisions itself wearing leather jackets and six-foot silk scarves, uh, it's bound to meet a little resistance. You know, change always does. And um, for the longest time, you know, the Air Force looked at us as well. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know what it can do. Uh, so rather than put their best pilots into it, they tended to put their worst pilots into it. Uh, and that really hurt it in the long run because uh, there's so many things we could have done in Bosnia where it first deployed. Uh, and then now, you know, now you've seen the change, you know, and we've we've changed that over time. When we look at the way it evolved over time and the way the pilots evolved over time, talk about what the argument was internally that really was able to get more, get it taken more seriously, get more money from, from the Defense Department, from Congress. What were the arguments in favor of drones that, that enabled it to win the day internally? Well, there, I think there's two key arguments. Uh, the first and the one that's most dear to all the parents in the country uh, is that it lowers the investment in blood in war, uh, at least in your own blood. And you want as many of your sons and daughters to come home alive. And this allows a lot of them to stay home while they continue to do uh, the mission that the government gives them. But on the, on the other hand, um, I think the United States Army would be the other driving force in why the program has gotten as big as it did. Uh, one of the chapters I talk about in the book, uh, you know, it's titled uh, The Shot Heard Around the World. At the time, you know, it, we were considered a joke, and a lot of the pilots were very unprofessional. They would check in with a guy on the ground and just say, hey, here I am, and sometimes literally just say, here I am. And the Army didn't know what to do with them. You know, can this guy support me? What can he do? And he doesn't sound professional, so so they just let him sit there. Well, one day, one of our pilots, he's an F-16 guy. He flew close air support um, you know, during the invasion, so he knew how to work with these guys. So, you know what? Today, I'm going to check in like a fighter pilot. And he gave him the formal brief that we give to the guys on the ground to let them know what we are how, and what we can do to help them out. 
turns out this unit was under fire. They were about to be overrun. Five minutes later, he used up all his ammunition and defended them, brought all of those guys home. And the Army sat back and said, hey, wait a minute, what can this airplane really do? You guys have been holding out on us. And so we saw a spike in, in shots in defense of American troops at that time. And within a year, the airplane had become indispensable to Army operations. It had become so good at defending the troops that the Army wanted one for every single operation it ran. In that sense, what was different about what drones could do versus what piloted aircraft might be able to do in a similar situation? Well, we could stay on target longer. Uh, Other than that, there really is no difference. Um, The Air Force, probably about seven years ago, uh, decided to st- stop calling the Predator a drone, and they started calling it a remotely piloted aircraft. And they did that to try to send the point to everybody that this isn't the little quadcopter you see flying in a park, you know, or in your city doing, you know, filming and videos and stuff like that. This is a plane, a full-size aircraft, flown by a licensed pilot, real people, real men and women flying these airplanes, thoughts, motions, the whole nine yards, lots of drama flying in defense of their country. And when you start looking at it that way, you start realizing these aren't different than manned airplane other than the fact the cockpit's not physically attached to the airplane. But I have a whole set of flight controls. I have a stick, a throttle, and rudder. If I push the stick forward, cows get big, pull stick back, cows get small, just like any other airplane. Uh, but the difference we make is, is I can stay in a target for hours at a time and bring a missile or a bomb to bear on the target if necessary. Uh, And that really enables the guys on the ground to protect themselves, but also take care of the mission. What's the difference, particularly as drones or these remote piloted aircraft have evolved in use, between their surveillance mission and their combat mission? Uh, Well, both surveillance and and dropping weapons are are both combat missions in a regard. Uh, When I look at this, I I look at how aircraft themselves developed in World War I, because uh, it follows the same basic path. They both started out uh, between the wars as reconnaissance only. You know, the, the Army, the Signal Corps in World War One had no idea what to do with these airplanes. So they sent them across the line, hey, go observe, go spot for artillery, go look for things. But as the guys flying these watched the slaughter underneath them, they became you know, understandably upset. So one day a guy took a wrench up and tossed it at an airplane as it flew by. And the next day, a guy brought a pistol. The next thing you know, they had machine guns, massive air battles. In this war, pretty much the same thing. We started out as just surveillance, and we did that through the 90s. The airplane was introduced to the Air Force in 95. Uh, flew it in Bosnia, just surveillance, no weapons. Um, but then we introduced weapons, and it completely revolutionized how we do warfare. Yeah, it gives us a greater ability to protect our troops. It gave us more precision because of our endurance on the target, but also the ability to really scope out what we're shooting at and to make sure we hit the right thing and, and minimize collateral damage. Uh, it has really changed how we look at things. Now every Air Force in the, Air, in the world, every modern Air Force, is looking at ways to incorporate unmanned aircraft into their arsenals. Because there isn't a concern in the same way for the pilot, What's different in terms of rules of engagement and how those rules of engagement play out in the operation of a mission? Well, you know, the uh, rules of engagement are largely the same between manned and unmanned aviation. Uh, For 
Where the Rules of Engagement incorporates not only international law, but also uh, procedures for theater agreements with the host nation or uh, with the, the local governments, things like that. Uh, and these are the basic procedures on how an aircraft uh, incorporates an airstrike. The difference between the two is an unmanned airplane will actually have more controls on them. A fighter, for example, may only have to require a ground commander's uh, approval to drop a bomb. But the predator may require a general officer or a politician back in the states to approve the airstrike. It takes longer to to vet a target because of that. But you know, considering the the political sensitivities, the idea be, being is, is let's make sure we hit the right target and not uh, hit something that we should not. And why is that? Why is there greater concern and and a greater chain of command in the approval process? for the targeting with remote piloted aircraft versus fighter air, manned fighter aircraft? Well, in part, that, that starts out with the type of targets we go after. Most fighters are in the dirt with the Army, whereas the Predator tends to go after more high-value targets. So there, there may be political sensitivities with the type of individuals that, that we target. Uh, a case in point would be uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, we found him in 2005, or 2004, rather, uh, I passed the, I passed it to my intelligence analyst when I found him, uh, and this is all in the book. It's it's a great story, uh, and it shows how the ROE works for us. The intel analyst agreed with me. They watched him for over an hour and realized this is Osama bin Laden, and sent it up the chain for approval. And someone in the chain said, you know what? I do not have enough information to launch an airstrike. And fresh on their minds, in 2002, an incident where we dropped a bomb on uh, Osama bin Laden again, turned out it was a farmer and his sons. So w- without being able to confirm 100% that this was not a farmer just walking to his uh, field, uh, we couldn't do anything. And while we went to do the mission, we also want to minimize the, the collateral damage. This is not dissimilar to what we saw a week or so ago with the Doctors Without Borders hospital that was bombed. Not at all. Uh, you know, the rules of, of engagement have to be uh, followed, uh, yeah, and that's exactly what we do for every air, every air asset that drops weapons. Uh, and, you know, the investigation's still pending. I'm not really sure where, the, where that's going to go. I think we need to wait for the information to come out. But ultimately, you know, the, the key deciding point for, for that particular incident is going to be were the rules of engagement followed and was the target valid? And when you look at the law of armed conflict, the hostile by in and of itself is not a valid target. And it must be clearly marked. And, and you know, the Doctors Without Borders did the best they could to inform the military where they were and what they were doing. The question becomes, you know, next is, was it still a valid target when it was bombed? And that can change if the Taliban or someone else uses their building as a base of fire, you know, someplace where they can launch a strike from. And as long as it's active as a, a shooting location, it becomes a legal target. Uh, and there are a lot of questions that have to be answered with that. And that, that's why I think the military has been reticent to just come out and say, okay, this is what we think happened. Because if you just spit out a lot of information, it it raises people's hackles without having the full story of what really happened. And that's hard to do when you have the fog of war and, and the limited information available to each guy who's in the field. Is there more willingness, though, to engage in, in these kind of operations with predators versus manned aircraft, particularly when the information comes, as it may have in this case, from really faulty intelligence? Uh, 
I would say no. Uh, if you look at uh, the statistics out of Central Command, manned airplanes still drop far more weapons than, than the unmanned aircraft do uh, by a long shot. Uh, it's, when you look at the UAVs, they are very, very regulated just because of the perception. When you look at the history of the media reporting, there's not been a lot of information made available for for these stories. So it, it leaves a lot of room for guys to interpolate what they think the predator is. There's a conception that these are just robots. You know, they're James Cameron's Terminators rampaging across the countryside. Right. It's simply not the case, right? I mean, it, it, they're not. They're man, they are actual, real, full-size airplanes flown by licensed pilots, following rules of engagement more strict even than other manned airplanes. And when we look at it that way, it's yeah, it, they're not going to be the marquee for something like that if if they're not sure what's going on. Talk a little bit about how difficult it is and how different it is to actually fly these things. Uh, it is a challenge. You know, I, I had the opportunity to fly the U-2 uh, at one point in my career. I did 20 years as a, as a pilot in the Air Force, the last 10 of which was uh, with the Predator program. So I flew a lot of manned airplanes prior to this. The U-2 is listed as pretty much the, the most difficult airplane to land in the world because uh, you actually have to stall the airplane to make it stop flying. <laughs> <laughs> which most people don't want to do. Um, it, it's inherently uh, wrong for a pilot to stall an airplane. When I've, uh, but the difference between a manned airplane and this and the Predator is I have all my senses engaged when I fly. I can feel the airflow over the wings. You know, when I turn the flight controls, I can feel the resistance. I can feel every bump of the turbulence. I can hear the engine running, and any hiccup in the engine, I sense something's wrong before I even look at the instruments. When I fly a Predator, all I have available to me is my sight. So all these things that I feel, the seat of, seat of the pants, if you will, when I fly the airplane, is absent. So I have to rely on my instrumentation, reading my data readouts and my dials and gauges, and anticipate ahead of what the airplane is doing before it drops into a sink rate and makes me land short of a runway, for example, or uh, I do something that exceeds a limit. Uh, and it becomes a challenge. It's not a difficult challenge to overcome because what I had over 3,000 hours flying experience before I joined the Predator program. I was able to adjust pretty quickly to, okay, these are, these are the cues I have to look for. But it is a challenge. How much difference does it make where the remote piloting is happening? I mean, is there a difference, for example, flying a plane out, out of Djibouti when, when you're on a mission in Afghanistan as opposed to what went on during the Bosnian War, for example, when these things were flown out of Kansas? Uh, there is a little bit of difference. Uh, for one, most of our mission, the mission parts of our sortie, uh, are flown from the United States. In theater, we'll launch an airplane by radio control. We'll switch it to satellite and hand it over to the guys back here in the United States and let them fly the meat of the sortie. At the end of the day, they'll do the same thing in the opposite direction, give it back to the launch and recovery facility. They'll land it by radio, um, and that's how the, the basic mission works. Uh, so wherever my ground control station or the cockpit, if you will, is located in the world, I can fly the airplane anywhere I want. Uh, and that's, that's neat and unique. So I, I can deploy fewer people, you know, save the price of blood, but also at the same time, it gives me so much flexibility. Um, 
But when I'm actually flying the mission, whether I'm in Djibouti or in America, it looks and feels the same because I'm talking to the guys on the ground. I'm interacting with the Army who's in harm's way, and our goal is bring them home alive. You know, we want every every mother, son, and daughter to come home alive. Um, so when we do that, you know, it, it feels the same. You get so engaged in the mission, you know, you feel the visceral effects of it. You, you get the adrenaline running when something bad happens, or when you have to do something like take a shot, that it really doesn't feel any different than when you are in an airplane. What is the cutting edge right now of what these remotely piloted aircraft can do, and where is the technology going as you see it? Well, the future is wide open for unmanned aviation. Uh, the Predator has shown that in congested airspace, we can fly safely with any other aircraft. In Djibouti, for example, we had um, 3,500 flights a day out of, out of a single-strip airfield, uh, and we interacted with airliners, small, um, like a Cessna 182 type aircraft, uh, military fighters from several uh, air forces, bigger airplanes, uh, helicopters, whole nine yards. Uh, and we develop procedures to fly in and out of the airspace based on our capabilities and you know the education of the local government on, on how we operate. And we did it safely. So the next step is, is where can we go? Um, right now we do a lot of humanitarian missions with these aircraft. You know, they're not well advertised, but they're there. We went to New Orleans after Katrina. We went to Haiti after the earthquake a couple of years after that uh, to help with the relief efforts. Uh, we could also be using these sorties in Syria or throughout Europe uh, for the migrant crisis as the winter months come on, because that will be a factor. Um, cargo aviation in the future may incorporate unmanned aircraft uh, flying cargo over water, maybe eventually domestically. Uh, I think it'll be a very long time before folks are confident with the technology before we do manned passenger flights or unmanned passenger flights. But I think uh, ultimately the world is, is the UAV's oyster. How much easier, particularly as technology continues to evolve, how much easier is it to make the decision to engage in combat missions knowing that there aren't lives at stake? I don't think that's that's any easier for a politician than than manned operations. When we look at the the centerpiece of our book is the hunt for the American terrorist Al Lockie, and the only reason why we sent predators in to do the mission is because diplomatically we cannot put actual troops on the ground. Uh, and w without having the option to capture him and return him to the United States, we had one option, and that was to put the the burden of the mission on the shoulders of predator. Uh, it was not a light decision that the president had to make. Um, but ultimately, we're, we're just one tool in the entire military arsenal. And as a team, we have to work with all the different components, including troops on the ground, for our military operations to succeed. You know, we're, we're, we're going to remain a minor part of it. You're not going to see UAVs or unmanned anything doing everything in the future. What is your concern, if any, with respect to the use of these remotely piloted aircraft in any kind of domestic use, particularly as it relates to law enforcement? Well, that's an interesting question that I, I think the government needs to come to terms with. Uh, you know, what are the laws? You know, Executive Order 12333, signed by J Jimmy Carter and endorsed by every president after that, prevents uh, spying, active spying on particular Americans. Uh, when we're training in the Predator here stateside, we're not allowed to even look at cars passing by our uh, our training areas because, well, if they do something illegal, 
now where are we? We're now in, in uh, violation of that executive order. Uh, so I think there's some some issues that the politicians and the local governments need to come to terms with with the, these capabilities, and and the means which they should be used. Right now they're being used for uh, say pipelines, uh, to look at the pipelines, to having a manned air, aircraft they can use a drone to check see if the pipeline or power lines are still uh, functioning or if there's any problems that need to be repaired. Uh, they can be used for search and rescue, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, there are a lot of applications outside of uh, surveillance that they can be used for. Uh, even Amazon is, is currently testing uh, drone package deliveries which I think is, is an amazing thing. There are a lot of issues to, to be considered before it's considered safe or should be implemented. But I think there's there are a lot of applications we can use. You've mentioned before about licensed pilots, real pilots, being at the controls of these drones. And certainly with respect to the military, that, that seems to have been the case. But there's always much talk about the skills required to pilot these drones being slightly different, and you alluded to that before, than piloting a normal aircraft. And we talk about, you know, kids that are good, for example, at video games being perhaps ideally suited to pilot these drones. Well, that it does take skill to fly the airplanes. And while the mechanics of how you fly the airplane is not difficult to learn. It can be a challenge, you know, for a pilot to readjust. The reality is, is the understanding of how our airspace structure in America and the world is designed is trained over time with the pilot training programs through the FAA or the military. And so having a license gives you that training before you show up to the program. And we've seen issues where uh, experimental programs have brought in guys who are not pilots and you see them uh, running afoul of other airplanes. Uh, the Army went through this a number of years ago. They started bouncing uh, their their shadow aircraft off of choppers and one even hit a C-130 in, in uh, Iraq. Uh, and when they started looking at it, it's like, these guys don't know what they're doing in the airspace. And the Army's since gone back and redesigned their programs so that they at least get a private pilot license equivalency worth the training in understanding how to work within the airspace. Because without that, yeah, that it's not terribly safe, and and that's the steps the the Air Force, the Army, and whoever operates these is working towards to ensure that these aren't uh, an accident waiting to happen. What should we be worried about as about drones and remote piloted aircraft as an instrument of policy? Where are the dangers? Well, there are a lot of dangers. You know, it's. A lot of a lot of folks they have a misconception of what these aircraft are, and when we go back to that the Terminator analogy I have, that that really gets folks upset. And as an instrument of policy, if, if the first thing you do is start sending predators over to take a look at something, that may very well get a government wondering what it is you're doing in their borders, uh, and why are you there in the first place? Because you know international borders are there for a reason. Uh, and that's something that the politicians have to weigh. You know, what's the diplomatic implications of using these aircraft? You know, we saw F-117s in the past. They only deployed when America was getting serious about taking military action. So when talks started breaking down, it, it became obvious that we were going to have to do something. These guys showed up in theater, and all of a sudden everybody stepped back and said, hold, hold on, let's, let's keep talking this out. And the predators can be the same kind of instrument uh, eventually. With respect to their use for surveillance, Talk a little bit about how much better they're getting all the time as the technology, the cameras, etc., gets better. Well, we touched on this a little bit about the, being distant from the battlefield but mm -hmm. still being there. 
Uh, for most pilots, they, they look at the battlefield from 30,000 feet, 20,000 feet, and they barely see much at all. The guys that get down and close like the A-10s who really support the ground units and do the, the really tough jobs, they see a lot more, but a lot of times they don't see the effect of their weapons. For the Predator, we see everything in high definition. Uh, absolutely everything. We follow a guy for a month at a time. We get to know him. We get to know his habits when he wakes up, when he goes to bed, what he does at work, when his family is at home, when, when they're at school, when they're at the market. We know everything about them. So when a decision is made to take a shot, it's very personal. And the intimacy increases when you take into account the high def. Uh, one of the shots I talk about in the book against a facilitator the last five seconds of his life, I looked him in the eye. He realized what was happening when he heard the missile coming in and looked right at me through the camera in my airplane. And in high definition, I watched him die. And that's a hard thing for a lot of guys to deal with. It's not the same as, a, as an army troop who's in a firefight. Those guys have it much worse because they feel it with all their senses. All I have is vision. But there's still a psychological impact of, of taking such an action when you know what you see is not Hollywood special effects. It's a real life being lost. Uh, and you have to come to terms with that. And yet there is this sense of disengagement that goes along with it because you are watching that in high definition and you're thousands of miles away. Well, we're not disengaged at all. Uh, we're deeply involved with the missions uh, and we know everything about what the target is before we even start looking for them. Uh, we're, we're involved with intelligence analysts. We know what the mission is. We know what's expected of us. And when a fight happens, a, a convoy is ambushed or an IED goes off, an improvised explosive device, we feel that because our goal is to bring everyone home alive if we can. If we can't, it's unfortunate. But, um, you know, when we have to take a shot, it's very visceral. The, the adrenaline rush, it rushes through your veins because you know what's about to happen is, is permanent. It cannot be undone. And you have to you have to understand that even though I'm distant from the target, well, I'm distant in a B-52 also, but I'm still going to have that adrenaline rush when I release that bomb. The end result is the same. Whether it's an unmanned airplane or a fighter or a bomber, the weapon still will drop from the sky and land on, on the target. Which finally raises the question for younger pilots, for those coming into the military now or even in a few years, that haven't had the combat experience, that haven't had the ground experience, that see this only from the point of view of remote piloted aircraft, will they have a different kind of experience and will that experience be more disengaged and more like it is a Hollywood movie, if you will? Well, I think that's always possible. Uh, every war is different. I mean, I, I, you look back at Vietnam with the first uh, uh, SAM hunters, the surface air missile hunters. They, they had uh, what the Air Force used to call the hunter-killer mission of the suppression of enemy air defenses. And they had a, a high kill rate. It was very up close and personal, forcing a SAM site to go active and shoot at them so they could shoot back. Um, and then now we rarely see that. You know, it might be the first couple of days of a, of the war, either in Afghanistan or especially Iraq, but after that, it's all down to what we're doing here. And that's very unusual because Vietnam never got to that point. Neither did uh, the Gulf War, for that matter. It was it was lots of uh, manned aviation and bombing and things like that. So every war is different. Every technology is different. So the future, as Hap Arnold put at the end of the book, uh, that that I put in the end of the book, 
it may very well be the next worst fight just with unmanned airplanes. But I don't think that's likely. I think we're still going to have a human element in there in theater doing the job side by side with it. Lieutenant Colonel Mark McCurley, his book is Hunter Killer, Inside America's Unmanned Air War. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.